What do all of these people have in common? They have all went from riches to ruin. They all lost almost everything at one time in their life. Some of them, uh, for example, Michael Jackson, with all the millions of albums he sold, he sold 750 million albums while he was alive. And yet at his death in 2009, he reportedly owed a whopping $500 million and his estate had gone bankrupt. Judy Garland, when she died, she left her estate with $4 million in unpaid debts. Mickey Rooney, when he died at 93, he was nearly penniless. Veronica Lake died at 50 in poverty. Corey Holm died at age 38. And when he died, his family had to ask his fans to help cover his funeral expenses. Burt Reynolds, did you know this? Burt Reynolds, uh, you know, in his heyday, he was making $10 million a movie per movie. And yet he almost lost all of his $60 million net worth on living a a lavish lifestyle. Uh, He didn't buy just one mansion in Beverly Hills. He bought several, and then he built a massive uh, waterfront estate in Florida. Then he bought a 160-acre ranch, also in Florida, where he kept a stable of 150 horses. And then he bought a mansion in Georgia. He owned a private jet and a helicopter. But that is until he lost almost every penny and had to file a bankruptcy, owing over $11 million dollars. That's just kind of mind-blowing, isn't it? It seems that going from riches to ruin isn't that rare of a thing, actually, but it's certainly not limited to to just Hollywood celebrities. As we have been looking uh, here in this passage, uh, as we began last week in the book of Amos, what we've seen is that God has Israel in the crosshairs. Uh, Amos began with this message of of proclamation, pronouncements against these six Gentile nations and then Judah, but but he was zeroing in on the nation of Israel, the the northern kingdom of Israel. And so God has sent Amos with this message of indictment against the the elites, the rich, the ruling class of Israel of the day, the rich living in Samaria, and and he's come with this message, a warning of what was to come. And so follow as I read along. Follow as I read along. This is Amos chapter 3. You might have to go back a slide or two there. Amos chapter 3, beginning in verse number 9. This is the message. Announce this to the leaders of Philistia and to the great ones of Egypt. Take your seats now on the hills around Samaria. And witness the chaos and oppression in Israel. He says, verse 10, My people have forgotten how to do right, says the Lord. Their fortresses are filled with wealth taken by theft and violence. Therefore, says the Lord, an enemy is coming. He will surround them and shatter their defenses. Then he will plunder all their fortresses. This is what the Lord says. A shepherd who tries to rescue a sheep from a lion's mouth will recover only two legs or a piece of an ear. So it will be for the Israelites in Samaria lying on luxurious beds and for the people of Damascus reclining on couches. You drawing a picture here in your head? 
Verse 13, now listen to this. And announce it throughout all Israel, says the Lord, the Lord God of the, of the heaven's armies. On the very day I punish Israel for its sins, I will destroy the pagan altars at Bethel. The horns of the altar will be cut off and fall to the ground. And I will destroy the beautiful homes of the wealthy, their winter mansions and their summer houses too. All their palaces filled with ivory, says the Lord. And then chapter 4 and verse 1. Listen to me, you fat cows living in Samaria. You women who oppress the poor and crush the needy and who are always calling to your husbands, bring us more drink. The Lord has sworn by his holiness. The time will come when you will be led away with hooks in your noses. Every last one of you will be dragged away like a fish on a hook. And you will be led out through the ruins of the wall. You will be thrown from your fortresses, says the Lord. Now listen, before we get into this rich passage of Scripture, here's what I want to remind us. This is more than a history lesson. What we're, this is not, the message tonight is not intended for us to just learn some history about what happened in the northern uh, kingdom of, of Israel back in the days of Amos. Yes, we're going to see that, but, but what I want to remind us tonight is that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, right? Why? So that we can be, as, the, as men and women of God, that we might be equipped, right? That, that God might uh, perform in us the, the good work that he began in us. And so God uses Scripture, and all Scripture, including this chapter, is for our benefit, is for uh, reproof and correction, instruction in righteousness in our lives. So we have to look at it that way. So there's some important things for us to glean here from this passage. Here's the big idea of tonight's message. It's simply this. God judges those who oppress the most vulnerable in society. God judges those who oppress the most vulnerable in society. So what we're going to see tonight is Israel's carnality, Israel's cruelty, and Israel's calamity. First of all, Israel's carnality. And here's the truth that we're going to see. This comes right from the New Testament. The love of money is what, church? It's the root of all evil. Israel's carnality. What do we see as we, as we just, what we just read here from these verses? The first thing that we see was that they were a people of great affluence. They were a, a very affluent people. The, the, the elites living in Samaria. Amos talks of their, in verse uh, 10 of chapter 3, their fortresses filled with wealth. He says they were, verses uh, chapter 3 and verse 12, they were lying on luxurious beds, reclining on couches. The word luxury there comes from a, uh, a Latin word that means excessive. Originally, the word was used uh, to refer to plants that grow abundantly. And then it became uh, used to refer to people. People who have an abundance. People who have money, time, and comfort that they use for themselves as they live in aimless leisure. And that's what's going on here in Samaria. They were living very comfortably. It says in chapter 3 and verse 15, they were living in beautiful homes. They had winter mansions. They had summer houses. They had palaces filled with ivory. I mean, 
Church, do we think about people in that day living like this? I, I don't know that it really has ever crossed my radar outside of passages like this. I kind of picture people living in kind of little mud brick homes, right? I mean, very, very uh, common. And of course, many people did. Many people did. But those that, that Amos is delivering this message to, he's delivering the message in Samaria. He's speaking to these elites and, and who are living the, these lives of ease, and they're demanding, bring us another drink. So they had it all. What did they have? Well, here on the screen, they had prosperity. They had pleasure. They had protection. And they had peace. They had what most people today are trying to get, right? They had it. They had it all. Uh, in Mayo Rudolph's uh, TV series, Loot. Now, I should tell you this. I read about this. I've never seen the series, all right? So don't think that I've seen this episode or whatever. I, I read about this as an illustration that I thought would work here at this point in the message. But maybe you've seen this TV series, Loot. Uh, Molly Kovac um, is, I guess, the star. She recently, uh, in the story, has been divorced from her billionaire husband, and she's turned her wealth and attention to her uh, uh, her foundation, you, you know, she's become this philanthropist, and, and so, uh, but she can't seem, I guess, to, to shake her habit of extreme wealth. So in one episode, Molly takes some of the women from the foundation to her spa for some self-care, right? This is, a, this is a big thing today, self-care, right? Because, as she explains, if there's one thing rich people know a great deal about, it's self-care. And she says this, I once took six baths in one day in three different countries. I'm very proud of that, she says. I didn't even know that was possible. I guess if you fly the right way against the, 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 the sinking sun, I guess that's possible. But look, some self-care is necessary, isn't, isn't it? But too much self-care is vanity, and it's often destructive. Henry David Thoreau in his classic book Wal uh, Walden wrote this. He said, most of the luxuries and many of the so-called comforts of life are not only indispensable, but also positive hindrances to the elevation of mankind. Would you agree with that? I mean, the, the comforts and the, the, the luxuries that we have today, oftentimes it is a hindrance to the positive elevation of mankind. But I want you to understand something. Israel's sin was not being wealthy. Please hear this. It is not a sin to be rich. It is not a sin to have the comforts of life. If this is God's will for you, Abraham was a wealthy man. Yet he was called the friend of God. God had blessed him. He had much. David also was very wealthy, King David. Uh, and yet he was called a man after God's own heart. Both Abraham and David were very wealthy men. But listen, they used what they had for God's glory. The problem in Israel is not that they had some wealth. The problem in Israel is that their wealth had them. Their wealth had them. Luxury doesn't mean owning an abundant of uh, possessions as much as allowing possessions to own us. And this is, this is the plague of our culture today that we're all intertwined in. To live in luxury is to use what we have not only for our own enjoyment, but 
to ignore the needs of others while we're enjoying it. It means being irresponsible in the way that we use our wealth, wasting it on futile pleasures instead of using it for the good of others and, and for the glory of God. There was a sign in a clothing store, exclusive clothing store that read, if you must ask for the prices of our garments, you can't afford them. People who live in luxury don't bother asking what the prices are. They don't care how much it costs. They just want to have what they want, right? And I would dare say that none of us in this room would call ourselves wealthy, rich, right? I mean, uh, you do the research on this. Rich is always someone who has more than us, right? Someone who has a plane, someone who, you know, we, we, we can always like imagine out what rich is. But, but we understand too that in the eyes of the third world, even the poorest in our country are rich. We're all, compared to the vast majority of people on the planet today, look around, we're all rich. We all are. We're all considered wealthy. The, the luxuries that we consider necessities are, are luxuries in, in the rest, much of the world. So having riches isn't sin, but having riches increases our risk of becoming arrogant and forgetting God. This is exactly what happened. Listen to God's warning. Listen to God's warning. 700 years earlier, this is Deuteronomy 8, 11 through 20. This is what God says. This is long before They've moved into land 700 years earlier. God says, be careful that you don't forget the Lord your God. When you eat and are full and build beautiful houses to live in, I mean, just remember what we've just read in Amos. See if this rings a bell. When you build beautiful houses to live in and your herds and your flocks grow large and your silver and gold multiply and you have every, and everything else you have increases. Be careful that your heart does not become proud and that you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. He led you through the great and terrible wilderness. He fed you in the wilderness with manna. In verse 17, you may say to yourself, my power and my own ability have gained this wealth for me. But, God says, remember that the Lord your God gives you the power to gain wealth. In verse 19, if you ever forget the Lord your God and follow other gods to serve them and bow in worship to them, I testify you against you today that you will certainly perish. Remember these words as we go through the rest of this message. This is a long time before what we're reading in Amos, God warned them, be careful that you don't forget. Well, what did we read? Chapter 3 and verse 10 in Amos. What, what does Amos say? The Lord's message, the Lord says this, my people have forgotten. What did they forget? He says, my, feet, my, my people have forgotten how to do right. They are so consumed with their treasures that their hearts have become cold and indifferent toward God and quickly they have forgotten how to even do right. They're so in, in, ensconced in their things, everything right and holy takes a back seat. What a terrible indictment of God's people. But it got worse because their arrogance led to apostasy. 
In chapter 3 and verse 14 of Amos, God talks about the pagan altars at Bethel. You know anything about Bethel? Bethel was a very special place in, in, in Israel's past history. This was a place, this was the house of God. I mean, this was the place where God met with, with their ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? And now there are pagan altars there. This is 10 miles north of Jerusalem. And when Jeroboam, who's the king during this time, when he became king, he established a religious cult to replace worship in Jerusalem, appointing his own priesthood, building his own altars, and actually constructing golden calves. This is what they're doing in Bethel, the house of God, the house of, right, God's, this, this place that was established as the, the, the place where God met with his people as their ancestors. And here they are worshiping at pagan altars. How does that happen? Could that happen today? Could could, could riches, could things take us away from God? Well, this is what Paul warns in 1 Timothy. The words here are on the screen, chapter 6, verses six, 9 through 10. But those who want to be rich, it doesn't say those who are rich, does it? Those who want to be rich fall into temptation, a trap, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, and by craving it, some have wandered away from the faith. See it? This wasn't just a problem for people living in ancient Israel. This is a problem for us in the church still to this, to this day. The love of money is the root of all evil. Jesus said this, you cannot serve God and money. We can't. We can't. Because when we're captured by earthly riches, we become a slave. We forget God, we forget how to do right, and we begin worshiping other idols and how quickly we go downhill. So we see Israel's carnality. We also see Israel's cruelty. Number two, and here's the truth here. When riches seize our affections, we grow cold toward God and cruel toward our fellow man. We grow cold toward God and cruel toward our fellow man. So what happened here? Back in Amos, right, they, they build these houses, these costly houses. They fill them with expensive furnishings. They, they're living lives of luxury while what's going on? The poor in the land are suffering. Again, their sin is not being wealthy. Their sin was in the manner in which they, first of all, adored their wealth. How they adored their wealth. They're living in unspeakable luxury. They never thought of doing without their diamonds so that people could have some milk for their starving children. You see what's going on in Israel and Samaria at this time? What happened? Riches stole away their hearts. Riches stole away their hearts. Jesus says, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. You see what's going on? 
Riches have remarkable power over us. Jesus says, first, the heart is involved, and these treasures grip us, and they seize our feelings and our affections, and when they do, it holds this, this iron grip on us. And when we find that our affections are centered on things, here's what begins to happen. It's on the screen here for you. When our affections are centered on things, we begin to love things and use people instead of using things and loving people as we're called to do. We get it backwards. We get it backwards. No longer did the people in Samaria love God, they loved themselves. They were completely self-centered, and so how could they love their fellow man? Well, of course they couldn't. Of course they couldn't. They didn't even love God. They were living completely selfish, self-centered lives. They were so bound by their greed and idolatry that it was impossible for them to even remember how to do right. Impossible for them to love the Lord. Impossible for them to love their neighbor as their self. Here on the screen are the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments. These were given to Israel long before Amos shows up on the scene in Samaria. The first four of the Ten Commandments teach us to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind and strength, right? That's how Jesus summarized it in Matthew 22. The, the uh, commandments 5 through 10 teach us to love our neighbor as ourself. This is what Jesus said. The first great commandment, the second great commandment, Jesus summarized them in Matthew 22, the 10 commandments. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. So what happens? When we no longer love God, when we, when we can't fulfill the first four commandments, we're not getting down to five, six, seven, eight, nine, and ten. You're not, we can't get there. And this is why we see our society breaking down in a, in a country where we used to teach the Ten Commandments in high school. We see this breaking down. Why? Because God's been pushed out. You push God out, everything else begins to crumble. Especially Loving our neighbor as ourself. Now it is every man for himself. And that's exactly what's going on in Samaria. So their sin was in the manner of how they adored their wealth, but also how they accumulated their wealth. How did they accumulate their wealth? Well, in chapter 3 and verse 10, it says that their fortresses are filled with wealth taken by theft. And so they've, they're, they're accumulating their wealth by burglary. Right? They are stealing it from people. Stealing it. Does that mean that they are you know, carjacking people, chariot jacking people? I don't think so. I think it had more to do with they were simply in through, through white-collar kind of crimes finding ways to extort and, and take from the poor, be it they need money, they need a, a pair of sandals, and so now that you're indebted to me for, you know, for the rest of your life. I mean, it was that sort of a thing that was going on, this sort of oppression and theft. So there was burglary and there was brutality. It says two things in verse 10. Their fortunes were filled by wealth taken by theft and by violence. By violence. In chapter 4 and verse 1, Amos says, he calls them fat cows. Fat cows. And this has nothing to do with their appearance or weight. It has nothing to do with that. It just has everything to do with 
the fact that they were living in luxury, it talks about their privileged circumstances. The cows of Bashan, in fact, Bashan served as a breadbasket for Israel, um, lush pastures. And so the cows that would, were put out to pasture there, they, they, these were the, the limousines of, of cows, right? I mean, these, these were the show cows that, that fed in the lush pastures of Bashan. And Amos is just pointing to, he's saying, that's, that's what we've become. That's who we are. We're these fat cows. Now, it seems, boy, that's really insulting. I actually think that Amos is using insulting language. I, I actually think he's insulting them. I think he's trying to get their attention. Perhaps in today's vernacular, maybe we'd call them the real housewives of Samaria. You know, have you ever seen one of those real housewife reality shows? Oh, you're shaking your head, no, good for you. Yeah, I haven't either. But, but that's, that's what I'm imagining. That's, that's who he's talking to here. And Amos de- depicts these divas, if you will, as these overbearing, upper-class, self-centered housewives of the unscrupulous officials in the capital city of Samaria. But they're not passive recipients of their husband's wealth. No, they are participating in the system of injustice. They're actually the perpetrators of their crimes because they want more and more and more and more. And they tell their husbands, get it for me. So it's a picture of extortion. It's a a picture of exploitation. It's a picture of manipulation of the poor and the needy in order to bankroll their opulent lifestyle all while lacking any uh, empathy for others. So they're living by this, it's all about me philosophy, where others are nothing but a means to an end. Are you picturing this? Kind of like Jezebel. Remember the former queen. Jezebel plotted against Naboth. Remember her husband wanted the field, Naboth's field, his vineyard. And so she plotted against Naboth and had Naboth killed so that she could give her husband what he wanted. It's the same kind of thing. And today I'm afraid that many Americans are consumed with this very type of living with an it's all about me mentality don't we see this don't we see it all over the media don't we see this all you watch a commercial it's all about me right we have to be aware of this we have to recognize the temptation and the pull of this and Paul wrote this and I think this speaks to us if we are the rich of the world Paul wrote instruct those who are rich in the present age, not to be arrogant or to set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth, but on God who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. Notice some things there. God provides things for us to enjoy. If you have things, it's, you don't have to go home and think, oh, this is terrible. I should be miserable because God has blessed me with these things. God gives us things to enjoy, but what, is, what does Paul instruct us here? He says, don't put your hope in those things. Don't become arrogant. 
recognize that God is the provider. And then he goes on in verse 18 of 1 Timothy 6, he says, instruct them, that's us, the rich, right, to do what is good, to be rich in good works and to be generous and willing to share, storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of what is truly life. You you get all that? Saying, don't get so wrapped up in the, in the goods and the things of this world, all the things we can possess, but be generous, be willing to share, store up for yourselves treasures for the coming age, for the other side, our next life. God expects this of us. God expects us to come alongside one another in times of need with material and spiritual assistance. Be generous, Paul says. Be generous. Jesus said it's more blessed to give than to receive. Proverbs 21, some people are always greedy for more, but the godly love to give. Proverbs 22, 6, blessed are those who are generous because they feed the poor. Now I know that even with the very best of intentions, many of us struggle to know how to best help the poor, do we not? How do we best help the homeless person? How do we best help the person who, you, you pull up to the intersection, uh, Brianna made the point um, on our way to church, she said, we don't see a whole lot of homeless people right now. You know, it's 110 out there. Maybe that has something to do with it. But, but do you struggle with how do I, how, what do I do? How do, what can I do? And, you know, that can be a difficult thing. You know, oftentimes we're concerned, you know, am I going to be giving them something? They're going to go out and buy drugs or whatever. Are they going to, is this going to add to the ruin in their life? Look, here's what I encourage us to do. I encourage us to allow the Holy Spirit of God to lead us. God knows what people's needs are. And when he puts on your, help that person, help that person. Be, be generous to help that person. But you can always pray and say, Lord, is this someone you want me to help? What do you want me to do? Oftentimes, though, it's not the people that we don't know. It's the very people that we do know that we need to always be willing to share and to be generous. But what had happened in Samaria, man, it was an all-about-me mentality So their carnality led to cruelty. And this is how it works. Forget God, forget to do right, and now we're going to start being mean and cruel to our fellow man. But here's what happens in this passage. This is Israel's calamity. And the truth here is this. The Lord hears the cries of the oppressed and eventually judges the guilty. God hears, God knows, God sees, and he eventually judges the guilty. It doesn't take God long, right? I mean, we read this passage, it doesn't take God very long to wipe out the idols that that people worship and, and the unnecessary luxuries that control our lives. Why? Because he hears the cries of the oppressed. He hears the cries of the poor, and eventually he judges. This is chapter 3, verses 11 through 15. Therefore, says the Lord, an enemy is coming. He will surround them and shatter their defenses, and he will plunder all their fortresses. 
right? They felt safe, they felt secure, they're enjoying peace and prosperity, but they would be attacked and plundered. And the imagery in verse 12 is striking and ironic. He says there in verse 12, this is what the Lord says, a shepherd who tries to rescue a sheep from a lion's mouth will recover only two legs or a piece of an ear. You picturing that? Who's the lion that's been roaring? Back up to last week's message, it's the Lord, right? The shepherd will only, will, will res- there will be something worth rescuing, but what is it? Two legs and part of an ear. It's not very much. It's not really a living sheep at that point, is it? There's a remnant But what Amos is getting at, the destruction would be devastating. This is what he writes. So it will be for the Israelites in Samaria lying on luxurious beds and for the people of Damascus reclining on couches. Now listen to this, verse 13. And announce it throughout all Israel, says the Lord. On the very day I punish Israel for its sins, I will destroy those pagan altars. Verse 15, I will destroy the beautiful homes of the wealthy. And so what once was these symbols of their prosperity and their financial security, God says, are going to become the very reminders of his judgment upon those who oppress the poor and the weak. Proverbs 22.6, a person who gets ahead by oppressing the poor or by showering gifts on the rich will end in poverty. God sees to it. So what's going to happen to them? We read about what God's going to do to their, their homes and their wealth. What's God going to do to them? Well, what do you do to cattle that's been fattened up? You slaughter it. You butcher it. Chapter 4, verse 2, The Lord has sworn by his holiness, the time will come when you will be led away with hooks in your noses. Every last one of you will be dragged away like fish on a hook. You will be led out through the ruins of the wall and you'll be thrown from your fortresses. And you know what Amos is describing here? He's describing events that took place some 50 years later. In 722 BC, their fortresses, their walls, their houses, they were all leveled. And the people were taken captives and they were forced out of the city, through broken places in the walls, the very walls that stood as a testimony of their wealth, their glory, their strength, their protection, through those very walls, these gaping holes, they they were led out through the holes in those walls with hooks in their nose or lip and roped together in a line. History tells us that the Assyrians who came in some 50 years later to defeat them This was their practice. This is what they did with their captives. They put hooks in their noses and they tied them together and they led them away. Amos is telling them what's about to happen 50 years later. The pompous and the pampered would be plundered and pierced and paraded away like herd of cattle. The causers of the oppression will we're now oppressed. You see how God turns the tables? Here's what I want you to know. It's on the screen. Riches don't insulate anyone from God's judgment. Anyone. 
You could be the richest person on earth. Who is that now? Who is it? Is it Amazon guy still? Betos? Anybody know? Nobody cares. I think it was I think it was the Amazon guy for a while, but I should have Googled it before I asked you the question. But you could be the richest person to, on planet Earth. God's not a respecter of persons. It doesn't matter. You, you can't buy your way. You, you can't pay off the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. You can't pay off. You can't bribe the judge who we will all stand before. You can't bribe them. You can't pay them off. And so the simple application is, is if we live like fat cows, we will be slaughtered like fat cows. And truthfully, living in America, it's pretty easy for us to just kind of blend in and live like fat cows. Is there any hope for Israel? You know, you read this particular passage and you think, man, shush, this is pretty devoid of hope. But you know what? There is hope. For one, there's hope in the fact that shepherd would be able to save two legs and the piece of an ear. There's a remnant. The people, the, the, the cities would be leveled. They would be carried away into exile. But there would be a remnant of God's people that would be spared, that would, they'd, they'd, be part, they'd be ripped with the nation. They would go through the suffering. We're in, a, in one of our guys' Bible studies, we're going through Daniel right now, and, and you, you think about Daniel. I mean, Daniel, he had to live through the exile. You know, we think about Daniel and the position that he was put in, but he had to go through the exile. He had to experience, ripped away from his family and his place of living and, and hauled off to Babylon. He had to go through that. And in the same way, these that, that, that would go through this particular, in 722, those who would live through that, they there would be those who would survive. God's judgment would be devastating, but it would not be total annihilation of God's people. God was not going to abandon his purposes for Israel. And I think the second message that, that the second part of the message that provides hope to God's people is to the oppressed. Because not all the people in Samaria were the elites filling their homes with wealth by violence and theft. There were people in Samaria who were the oppressed. They were the ones who were being violated and abused. They were the ones who were on the, the wrong side of the equation. And what Amos is saying here is that the time would, was approaching when the Lord would avenge them. When the Lord would defeat their oppressors and their oppressors would be no more. Soon there would be an end to their suffering. Psalm 103 verse 6 says, The Lord executes acts of righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. And so tonight, here's our next steps. Number one. Number one. I will call on God 
to be my help and deliver when I am oppressed. Maybe you're here tonight and you feel like the poor in Israel. Like, I get it. Like we said, we're all rich compared to much of the world. But the truth is, even in America, living here with what we have, the fact we might not be living on the street, but, but perhaps tonight you feel like the oppressed. You, you feel this heavy weight. You feel like the, that the elites of, uh, that, that exist in the world today, be it in government, be it in society, wherever, that, that there is an oppression that you feel coming down on you. What I want you to do when you, when you sense that you are oppressed is not to give up and to throw in the towel, but to call on God. This is what we find all throughout the Psalms. Read the book of Psalms. And what you'll find over and over are prayers like this. Lord, I am oppressed and needy. Hurry to me, God. You are my help and my deliverer. Lord, do not delay. Psalm 70. Psalm 56, be gracious to me, God, for a man is trampling me. He fights and oppresses me all day long. When you feel oppressed, talk to God about it. Go to the Lord because he knows, he's watching, he sees, and God can do something about it, and he will do something about it. So go to him. Is that the next step that you need to take tonight? Step number two, I will not work to be rich, nor will I gain wealth through dishonest or oppressive means. Let's not buy in to the Samaritan way, the philosophy of it's all about me, the American dream of it's all about me, what I can have and what I can gain Proverbs 23, 4, labor not to be rich, for riches certainly make themselves wings. They fly away as an eagle toward heaven. Proverbs 22, 22, don't rob the poor just because you can or exploit the needy in court. Don't, don't, don't be an oppressor. Don't get rich on other people's backs. Step number three, I will be generous with the wealth God has given to me, recognizing he is the provider of everything I have and calls me to share what I have and to store up treasures in eternity. Which next step do you need to take? You've heard about the wealthy businessman who died, and upon hearing of his death, someone, a business associate, asked Another, how much did he leave? Yeah. He left all of it. And church, the truth is, too, we're going to leave all of it, too. All we can take with us is what we send on ahead. So, church, let's learn from some people living 2,700 years ago. Let's allow the, the inspired word of God to teach us, to rebuke us, to reprove us, to correct us, to instruct us in righteousness. Why? So that the man of God might be thoroughly furnished. So that we might live lives that are honoring, glorifying to God, that God can use us. That's, that's our prayer. Would you pray with me?